3: Honestly, if I could be completely honest, I wasn't thrilled. I said to myself, like, really, 13 shows at the Garden, like, instead of a tour? Like, it's like, so what, we're going to get three tweezers, we're going to get three ghosts, we're going to get multiple repeats all at the same venue. I'm like, I'm not sure I really prefer this to a normal tour. You know, like, I'm used to the three nights at the Garden, four nights at the Garden. And like I said, doable from New Jersey, yes, but turns out to be or becomes a slog, I should say, over by the time you get night three, night four. Absolutely. You know, by the fourth night in a row of taking the train in and out of the city, you're like, all right, I'm good. <laughs> 13 nights spread out over two and a half weeks or whatever. I was like, oh, man, like, will I go to some shows? Yeah, but all of them, like only a crazy person would do that. So, you know, tickets go on sale. I I think when the initial Ticketmaster on sale went, like, I can remember a couple friends of ours bought the 13 night package like, because they were selling that. They had offered like a 13 night package, same seats for every night. And I was like, have fun. You guys are crazy. But when I went on sale, I remember buying Red Velvet through Ticketmaster, got some pretty good seats, and I'm like, we'll take it from there. One show, I'll look to add on later on. And I guess by the time Coconut came around, I had added on the other weekend shows, because I remember having those tickets in hand. But you know, my rationale is like, this is a lot of shows in one place, and I can probably wait and pick these up later on and cherry pick some really good spots. When I do feel like going, I don't need to go all in right now. You know, it's just like a supply and demand thing. And that turned out to be true until Fish said, oh yeah, watch this.
4: shows did seem a little little daunting. I didn't know what it was going to feel like. And then once I settled into a rhythm of going to the shows, it almost felt like it had become part of my life. And part I know this sounds ridiculous to say, but like, it was like a a job I was going to, you know, I sort of finished my day job and now it's time to go to my night job. It just, it just so happened that going to my night job was seeing my favorite band. (laughs) But, you know, it it felt like a routine that I could easily handle, not just for those 13 nights, but I was like, I just wish this was what normal life was like.
5: I mean, I would have sold anything and everything to be there. It was a no-brainer. I had lived in New York City for 17 years, had just moved out maybe three or four years before this announcement. So New York is my hometown. Madison Square Garden, I've seen all but four shows ever of fish at madison square garden and those are the shows that were before my time so yeah it was just i had to be there had to show support for my city for my my team for my you know my friends it was just the epitome of fandom the most special treat for any fan i I, i'm a fan of lots of different things but i can't think of a single one that gave us such a return on the investment of being a fan
6: york in the summer is awesome you don't have all the tourists for the ball drop and everything penn station's a little easier you know and that was the other nice thing about being at the baker's dozen in the summer was it was beautiful it was warm out you could go to central park or one day we went up to the world trade center and paid our respects and whatever you think. you know what i mean like there's things you could do and explore and enjoy the city and the weather whereas like When you're on New Year's run, you're bundled up, freezing your ass off, sitting in a bar. (laughs) Like, you know, you don't get that same experience with the city.
7: That was Susie Barros, Matthew Ascone. Nick Sejas, and a weekend Wook named Tim Donahue talking about Fish's wild 13-night residency at Madison Square Garden. And up next, we're going to talk about it, like, a whole lot more. Tom Marshall, Fish's lyricist and your tour guide. Your Fish tour guide on Undermine, a podcast that dives into the depths of various waters in Fish's ocean of Osiris. This season we're taking a bite out of the big apple while chomping on donuts from the Baker's dozen. Fish's bold and delicious 13-night stand in the summer of 2017. Last week we took a look at the venue that hosted the historic residency, Madison Square Garden. During those three weeks in 2017, Fish turned the world's most famous arena into Fish's own home court, a designation that remains accurate, as the band once again took over the arena for a delayed four-night New Year's Eve celebration just several weeks ago. That's April 20th to 23rd, 2022, for you late-to-the-game on-demand listeners who are hearing this in the future. And to those people we ask, how's the monorail? Did California secede from the United States? Is intelligence still a thing? And is this... the national anthem yet? On this week's episode, we'll take a look at the conditions that led Fish to believe, correctly, that they could park their tour buses at 4 Pennsylvania Place in New York, New York for three weeks and 13 shows straight without getting a ticket. Without getting a parking ticket, that is. Speaking of tickets, those that bought season tickets for the Baker's Dozen were treated to a true Baker's Dozen, meaning the 13th ticket was a free bonus, otherwise known as a Lenyap, care of the baker, fish. We'll talk to some of those fans throughout this season, and we'll also... Well, that's a cliffhanger, because we'll be right back after this quick word from our sponsors. We're back, but if you're just joining us, let's start at the beginning, the very beginning, the Big Bang. Fish formed on the campus of the University of Vermont in Burlington in 1983. Their first official live performance was in a college cafeteria, but they quickly landed a regular gig at Nectar's, a popular late-night bar and grill right on Main Street in the heart of the college town. Long before Fish could pull off 13 shows at Madison Square Garden, they would first have to pull off their first two-night stand and over the course of the next 34 years, work their way up to 13. There were many legendary two, three, and four-night runs in between. And then there was Big Cypress. Millennium's Eve Festival in crocodile-infested swamplands in Florida, where Fish performed five sets of music over two days, including a marathon record-breaking five-and-a-half-hour set from midnight to dawn on the first day of the new millennium. Tallied up, the band performed about 14 no-repeat hours of music across just two days down at Big Cypress, which at the time felt unprecedented. The Baker's Dozen, remember, stretched more than 34 no-repeat hours. Big Cypress evolved out of years-long conversations in which the band tossed around the idea of playing something they called the Long Gig, also known as the OG LG, a concept that was slightly repurposed for the five-and-a-half-hour Millennium set at Big Cypress. Let's hear from Andrew Peerless. I
8: think Trey announced it in one of the earlier sets of the weekend that they were gonna start at midnight and play until dawn. But um, we really didn't know until we got there. And then even after they announced that, it was a question of, is it gonna be one long jam? Is it gonna be one freeform thing? I remember people speculating that they were gonna do a full game edge set, you know, maybe with character actors or something like that. I mean, so much seemed like it was on the table. Um, And I think until the set got probably a quarter of the way through, we were just like, oh, this is gonna be a really long set now.
7: A really long set, indeed. Fish's longest by hours, and record-breaking if you want to break it down. Big Cypress was the largest New Millennium celebration and live concert in the world that night. Not bad for the little band that could, the four goofy guys from Vermont, that neither Rolling Stone nor MTV took seriously. The band's first manager, John Peluska, remembers the years of talks and brainstorming around the LG, the long gig, that led the band down the road to Big Cypress
8: what the band wanted to do was they wanted to be outside and they wanted to pl- they they had this idea they wanted to play all night and this goes back to a discussion that went on for many years which eventually just became known as the LG in our discussions which was the long gig they wanted to see what happened almost as a sort of a thought experiment or a big group experiment what happens if the band people come to a concert and I expect that they're just coming to a regular fish concert, but the band just doesn't stop playing. <laughs> and that was talked about for a long time. You know, obviously I don't even need to start listing all the logistical complexities of staffing and how do you keep it a secret and have all the staff prepared to be there and the security and all of the other basic necessities of managing a crowd like that for untold number of hours past the regular duration of a concert. So that never quite came to pass despite hours and hours of discussion and hilarious conjecture about what would actually happen. The band had this whole thing that if they wanted to stay they they were allowed one phone call. If they left they had to leave and they couldn't come back and if they wanted to stay they could have one phone call and all they could say was I won't be there or so I mean, they had some like very short thing that's <laughs> all they were allowed to say <laughs> Uh, Whether it's like work or home, uh, whatever it was, that was it. And then they had to hang up the phone and go back to the concert. That didn't happen, but the seeds of that kept percolating. And when it came time for this Millennium show, a more realistic but still ambitious version of that took much better hold, which was we're going to go on at midnight or a few minutes before midnight, and we want to play until the sun rises. And so that immediately gave us a fairly limited number of options.
9: There was so much hype going into it both as a as a time of the experience as well as it being Fish New Year's Eve. Big Cypress just has that feeling of memory being as good as you think it was being there. And the idea of putting a set on for midnight to sunrise and allowing themselves to play as long really as they wanted to and not having to deal with a curfew. Now this was a long time idea the band had to do the long gig, where they just played and played and played for as long as they wanted to and never had to worry about the length of the song or cutting it out. And here they had the chance to do that really, where when you listen back to the songs from that night, everything is stretched out, not excessively to a point of boredom, but really beyond what it would normally do and could express and breathe into the evening. The songs took on a life of their own. It was a very special event a very special set of, of magic, really. And and it feels that way just, just thinking back. You get chills.
7: That's Andy getting chills. Andy Gadiel of Gadiel's Fish page back at the time. I, I have a distinct
9: memory of when they were well into the evening and Reba started, which is really one of my favorites. And it just felt like they were so dialed into each other and what they were doing. And it was a powerful sense that we were really experiencing something that would never happen before and may never happen again. Just a band truly in the prime of their talents, letting it all hang out there. Again, given that it was New Year's, Y2K, 2000, it was like they were jumping off of a cliff and didn't know where they were going to go,
7: and that was great. He's talking about Big Cypress, but he could just as easily be talking about the Baker's Dozen. Fish's home office remembers the long gig as if it was a collective dream they dreamed long ago, only to manifest itself in several ways over several different decades, by means of Big Cypress and later, in a much different way, the Baker's Dozen. From the Fish Office, otherwise known as Fish Incorporated or even Fish Inc., here's Beth Montori Roll's remembering the endless talks.
10: I think the idea behind the long, the long gig, the way that I recall it, anyways, is that that it was more like they would be playing in a arena, say, or a theater, maybe even back then, is when how it was imagined and they would lock the doors and take out all the chairs and put mattresses down on the floor, give everybody one phone call to be able to go to the pay pay phone and call their work, their mother, and say, I'm not coming home or I'm not showing up. And, And that that was like kind of the initial concept of the long gig and we would feed them breakfast.
5: We'd always talked about this sort of the LG, we would call it, but the original idea for that was to play it somewhere indoors, you know, like, say, like the Worcester Centrum or something. You know, you'd go into the show not knowing it was the LG, and, like, you know, the idea was that they would just keep playing and, like, you know, that no one would know when it was going to end. But our plan all along was to do 24 hours. That was the original
7: idea. Would have been really cool if we'd ever, like, pulled it off. That's Brad Sands, and as usual, we don't know what he's talking about. You did pull it off, Brad. Just maybe not the exact way it was first envisioned, but it was legendary all the same. There's an anecdote in there somewhere.
5: we gonna lock all the doors. It was gonna be like one. you had to like go and like go through a process to get out. It would make it a lot harder for people to kind of. You know, leave, you know. (laughs) Because I'm sure a lot of people would have wanted to leave. (laughs) I mean, I think that it was two separate ideas in a sense, but they kind of were born out of the same thing.
7: So, Big Cypress and the all night gig came out of the idea for the long gig, the LG, and 17 years later delivered us fresh donuts, the 13-show no-repeat Baker's Dozen. But in order to go forward, as it is often the case, we first have to go back to the band's beginnings again, back 30 years before the Baker's Dozen, back to Burlington, back to Nectars, back to 1987 when Fish performed their first documented two-night stand on February 1st and 2nd. Despite a tentative start, due to the band members being in and out of college, scandals, and related snafus, international travel, and lineup changes, the band was in their fourth year already. In the late 1980s, Fish would perform many multi-night stands at Nectar's, making the Collegiate Bar and Grill their first home court. Those Nectar's shows were also the breeding ground for fish's singular sound, and all the stage time helped them develop their live show into the musical spectacle and extravaganza that is now inseparable from the very idea of fish. Before donuts, it was gravy fries. Nectar's was locally famous for their late-night gravy fries, but it became internationally famous for being the first home of Fish, who in turn immortalized those gravy fries in the liner notes to their fourth studio album, A Picture of Nectar, released in 1992. In the album credits, the band writes, Nectar Rorus, the proprietor, was happy to give us a gig despite our lack of experience, organization, or a song list long enough to last two sets. The night went well enough and soon we were playing a series of monthly three-night stands three sets a night on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Like countless other bands in Burlington's diverse music scene, those nights at Nectar's taught us how to play. It is significant that the band should note their repertoire at the time wasn't even large enough to make it through two sets, while committing to three sets a night for three nights in a row on a monthly basis. Performing on Sunday through Tuesday, the least popular days of the week to see live music, when you don't have enough material to last one night may seem like an unwise move to statisticians and squares, but in fact, it is the same serendipitous recipe for success that many legendary bands, including the Beatles and the Grateful Dead, cooked up before them. Endless stage time in front of sparse dance floors encourages experimentation. It's a situation that rewards risk-taking and rapid repertoire acquisitions, instant adoptions, creative approaches, and the kind of elongated improvisation that later on, at least in Fish's career, would lead many fans to look at the length of a jam as an indicator of its potential, with anything over the 20-minute mark generally being placed in an elevated category. To this day, Fish is comfortable performing Daredevil musical feats without a net, and no doubt, their earlier residencies at Nectar's, just a couple blocks from their band house, gave them the wings that they still rely upon when they jump off cliffs, which nowadays is in front of sold-out arenas, packed amphitheaters, and of course, the occasional beach. When Fish, the homegrown jam band from Vermont, shifted into high gear on the road to becoming a national touring sensation, and over the years that followed, they adopted a one-night stand model out of necessity and economics in order to cover miles, fill rooms, and expand their audience in new markets across the continent. But from the start, they had an understanding of the benefits that posting up in one place affords. In fact, The band's first true trek was to Telluride, Colorado, in the summer of 1988 for a week of shows where they only switched venues once, and that was to the bar just across the street. You may have seen the photo. There were repeats during those five nights, but not as many as you might expect. idea of a residency is certainly not new and there are plenty of examples of epic length residencies in rock and roll eric clapton set up shop at london's royal albert hall in 1989 for a dozen shows then an 18-night run the following year and a year after that in 1991 clapton performed an astounding 24-night run at the prestigious venue that's two dozen consecutive shows unlike fish The set list had a ton of repeats from night to night, but to keep it interesting, Clapton changed up the band every six nights, and now we know how many donut holes it takes to fill the Albert Hall. And okay, fair, Eric Clapton has never been known for crafting entirely different shows every night, but the Grateful Dead are pioneers of the no two shows alike mentality. They performed more than a baker's dozen shows when they took over the Warfield Theater in San Francisco for a 15-night stand in the fall of 1980. And sure enough, no two shows were exactly the same. But there were repeats every single night. Except opening night. That same year, The Dead also performed an eight-show residency at Radio City Music Hall for East Coast audiences who saw many repeats night after night. Late in The Grateful Dead's career, they, like Fish, made Madison Square Garden one of their homes away from home, Extended multiple-night runs had become the norm for their touring model, particularly on their fall tours, when they shifted from amphitheaters and stadiums back into arenas. In 1988, and then again in 1991, the dead moved into the garden for a couple of nine-show residencies. Both residencies were filled with repeats. Let's hear from a friend of ours here at Undermine, Jesse Jarno, host of the Osiris Limited series After Midnight, which chronicled Fish's Big Cypress experience. Jarno currently co-hosts the good old Grateful Dead cast.
1: Curious people who weren't necessarily deadheads would go check them out because the dead were in town and it would be eight nights and it wasn't always that hard to get a ticket. I mean, it, it certainly was, you know, 92, 94, it was definitely a little harder to get a ticket. You know, it was a place where curious people could check out the dead. And that's, you know, that's true for Fish as well. I certainly know New York musicians who are not necessarily Fish people who check the band out of the Baker's Dozen. But you know, part of the residency, you get eyeballs on you if you're in town for however many nights and selling out. For the dead it was that Radio City show and people camped out. That became a thing where there was like news crews came down to film them or, or whatever. But with the dead it probably um, it definitely was it was pretty normalized after a certain point. It's like, oh yeah, it was great for led through town again. I don't think The Dead thought too hard about their long run to Madison Square Garden. I think it was the solution to a problem for them. I mean, I think Fish think about it way more than The Dead ever did. You know, I think The Dead were thinking like one or two shows in advance, if that.
7: So while an extended stand in a single venue might not be radical in itself, Fish might just be the only band to pull off a 13-show, no-repeat feat. Of course, Fish had been training for this in a way for their entire career. Going back to Nectar's, two night stands, then three night stands, then four night New Year's Eve runs, then Big Cypress, the long gig. Those five and a half hours of extended improvisation as they plumbed the depths of their catalog prepped them for 34 and a half hours at the dozen. But enough math. You didn't come here for stats. You came here for donuts. Mmm, donuts. Here's a fun fact about donuts. Never mind. We're late for our very important break. Stay tuned. Before the commercials, we were talking about Fish, the Grateful Dead, and historic New York residencies. We would have failed you if we didn't mention the Allman Brothers band at the Beacon. I know we said we were done with math, but here's some statistics that need mentioning. Almost every March from 1989 to 2014, the Allman Brothers moved into New York's Beacon Theater for an annual residency that usually stretched between a dozen to 15 shows over typically a three-week period. Nicknamed March Madness for, well, obvious reasons, the annual residency was often notable for some of the special guests that appeared, including, in its final years, the occasional member of Fish. By the time the Almonds took their final bow as a band, which also took place at the Beacon, they had performed more than 230 shows in that theater alone, which is located on Broadway.
11: I think the history of entertainment in New York is tied very closely to the idea of the residency, and that is that New York's most visible cultural offering is its runs on Broadway, which is the classic New York residency. That's
7: the voice of our friend, Mike Greenhouse.
11: You have shows that run for years, and just a few blocks away from Broadway is Madison Square Garden.
7: And just a few blocks from the garden is the headquarters of Relics Magazine where Greenhouse sits in the editor's office.
11: I think there's a feeling that when you come to New York, you kind of want to roost there for a few days. You want to spend some time. You want to dig in. There's people who use Broadway plays and, and now runs by bands like Fish and Square Garden as an excuse to come to the city and take in the food and the art and the culture and the weirdness of all that. Um, and of course, on a smaller scale, the Jazz Club residency in, the, in downtown and up in Harlem have also been intricately tied to New York's rich history. And it's the idea that a band or a musician will touch down at a place for many nights and anything could happen between them. There could be guests, there could be special covers, the band feels comfortable, and it kind of shifts from being, you know, a proper show or a proper theatrical engagement to, this ex- to almost this rehearsal atmosphere where anything could happen. You know, you could try out a new idea. There's probably people coming multiple nights, so they want some sort of variety, whether it's uh, different songs, special guests, or just playing a song a different way. And I think if you combine that kind of jazz club mentality with the fact that New York is really built for Broadway runs, and you put those together, you kind of get the Baker's Dozen as as an experience. And of course, before then, long runs by bands like the Grateful Dead and currently Billy Joel and his monthly residency at the Garden.
7: In last week's episode, we took an in-depth look at the history of Madison Square Garden, both from the bird's eye view of history And through the sparkle filter of Fish's own unique heritage within its hallowed walls, around its old inner moat, and via the banner that now hangs from the rafters. There's a reason that Fish chose this particular building for their first extended residency. But let's now briefly examine the Fish tours leading up to the Baker's Dozen, starting in 2012, when Fish 3.0 had a few years to rev up and establish its own identity. Distinctly different from Fish 1.0 and Fish 2.0, and yet, of course, a natural part of the band's continual organic lineage. It's all on the timeline, and as such, Fish's 2012 Dix run represented the first sentence of a new paragraph within the new 3.0 chapter Fish was writing. Here to explain what I mean by that is H.F. Pod's Brian Brinkman.
12: what Dick's 2012 represents is kind of the culmination of everything that the band had, I would argue, everything the band had been working towards and hoping that they could possibly achieve again since, honestly, the morning of January 1st, 2000. It is a band that is playing music that was completely inconceivable the day before it happened.
7: Brian also produces Undermine. We talk a lot of fish around the water cooler. There's not a single
12: jam from the Fuck Your Face show on August 31st, 2012 that really has any place in the era prior to that. The band sounds completely connected. It sounds effortless. They are not lacking any ideas. Uh, None of the jams kind of bleed off of each other. They're all unified, unique ideas. And as you move through the run, you get the light. get the sand and the ghost uh, on third night and you walk away from that run thinking we have seen something completely shift in the fish universe and something is completely unlocked This was followed up by an inspired MSG run to close out 2012 and they moved then into this year, 2013, that now has this renewed energy.
7: 2013 was Fish's 30th anniversary year, a milestone that many rock bands never reach. It proved out of reach for Led Zeppelin, The Doors, The Beatles. Building upon the success of their breakout Dick's 2012 run and a breakthrough in Tahoe the following summer. Yes, the Tahoe Tweezer, Fish seized the moment to honor their past by forging a new path ahead, reaching improvisational territory that was different than anything they traversed, even during their lauded mid-90s, so-called peak years. Suddenly they found themselves at peaks just as high with vistas just as grand. The band returned to Boardwalk Hall in Atlantic City for their Halloween costume that year. And while parking lot chatter had fans guessing albums by the Allman Brothers, the band, and of course, as with every lead up to Halloween, Led Zeppelin or Jimi Hendrix, Fish instead played an album from the future. This album's from our last week's concert. Fish covered a Fish album that wouldn't be recorded until the following year.
13: I don't think that Winsuit was out of character for Fish on Halloween. Because Fish at their best, they always defy expectations, and that's what we want them to do. We don't want them to be predictable. That's
7: Benji Eisen.
13: Fish fans complain when the set list becomes predictable, but then they complain when Fish does something unpredictable because that wasn't what they expected. Fish at their best defy expectations.
7: In addition to being the head writer here at Undermind, Benji also wrote Rolling Stone's review for that 2013 Halloween show. Predictably, he gave it two thumbs up.
13: And I would argue that diehards, probably like most of us that have appeared on this podcast, I would argue that probably most of us welcomed Wingsuit. It was unpredictable, sure. So was, you know, most fish antics, the best ones, right? And it was still totally characteristic of them for anyone who's been paying attention. You know, leading up to this, to, to this particular Halloween and their 30th anniversary, leading up to it was one of the biggest droughts of new material that the band ever had. And their creativity suffered. They were beginning, perhaps for the first time in their entire career, to kind of feel I hate to use this word, but to kinda feel stale. It wasn't like they are past their prime, which is what some have argued the end of 2.0 was in danger of feeling like, or you know, whatever, but they were beginning to feel a little stale, temporarily. They had nowhere to go, creatively, and so the shows started to feel like recitals. Like it, they could just phone it in and post along. And it's funny, because you know some fans probably just want them to still play You Enjoy Myself every single night, but if they do that, then even You Enjoy Myself becomes stale. They have nowhere to go with it. So the one thing that was ma- missing from, I think, this period in Fish history that made it different than literally Every previous era of Fish was new material. And every time that Fish has new material, they like to showcase it. And in their 30th year, they are really trying to showcase their originals more than the covers, which of course also plays into this Halloween. When they have new material, they don't like to hold it back. They get really excited. And I mean I would rather I would rather see the band play a song that I might not love or have a deep connection or history with because it's brand new, but I'd rather see them play it and be really excited about playing it than to play my favorite song that I've heard 50 times live. Because it's going to be better. They're going to be better at playing that new song that I don't know than they are playing the old song that we all love, because that's what they're excited about in the moment. When they have these new songs, they get so excited that they love to just dump them on us. You know, like, LOL 1995. They've done this repeatedly. You know, they, they love to just showcase it, and they play these showcase demo shows of hey introductory introductory shows where they're like, here's this new material, look how cool it is. For the windsuit night, I went back to my hotel room and I immediately had to do the Rolling Stone review, and the and the uh, it was a largely positive review, of course. But I think the line that my friends kept quoting back to me about it was, you know, that it, I I said it took balls for Fish to do that. And frankly, it did. I was surprised to hear that some fans, a minority, mind you, I think, grumbled that they didn't get, you know, the Pink Floyd or the Almond Brothers or the band album that they wanted. Boo hoo! Look, Fish is my absolute favorite band. Sure, I love Pink Floyd. I really do. I love the Almond Brothers. I love the band. But Fish is my favorite band. And rather than have them play some classic album that I may or may not even be that familiar with, you know, you're know, you telling me that my favorite band of all time is about to surprise drop their first new album of new material in years on me live in its entirety? You're telling me that my favorite band of all time is about to demo a bunch of new originals live right in front of me and have me be a part of their workshopping process? I'll take that over The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Another thing to be said about those who complained, they would have complained if Fish had covered Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, <laughs> or The residents, or Huey Lewis. The result of Wingsuit is that they went through this renaissance period of songwriting, where after, after Wingsuit, of course, there are other Halloweens to follow where they did a complete song cycle for the quote-unquote album. But, you know... They were making the catalogue deeper during the same period that they were getting comfortable, once again, taking songs that aren't just their traditional jam vehicles out for these scenic drives. And I think Wingsuit is what renewed Fish's dedication to writing new songs, to showcasing new material, three decades into their career. So the Halloween gag, Wingsuit, it was a way for them to kind of say, You know what, guys? We're not just going to be a nostalgia act. We're not going to be a gimmick band. We don't want to be some type of caricature of ourselves. We want to be an evolution of ourselves. And so with Winsuit, they evolved.
7: This is pretty typical water cooler talk here at Undermine Enterprises. Brian's about to interject now with his own additions. Wait for it.
12: And you hear the band step into this new era that no one could have foreseen when they walked off stage on New Year's Eve 2011, you know, almost 2 years prior, and it seemed like they just they just kept throwing out older versions of Fish hoping something new would come of it. Here they are 20 months later throwing out completely new versions of themselves in a way that while it was controversially received in the moment, let's put it kindly, changed the entire dynamic of Fish 3.0. To me, without Wingsuit, there is no whatever would come from Fish 3.0. It's the most important thing that they did. It is on the same level of Tom sending that email of backwards down the number line to Trey in 2007. It's on the same level as the Grateful Dead coming to. Trey and asking him to play guitar in the latter part of 2014. It is this moment where the band takes a astounding risk that no one asked for, but would result in upwards of a hundred new songs and a revived creativity and shared partnership and shared brotherhood with each other. That is why we're still talking about Modern Fish today, almost 10 years later. They come out for their New Year's run at MSG and they try something that, that is in line with a Wingsuit and is in line with what they would do at the Baker's Dozen. They don't announce this but they play an entire run of just originals, no cover songs, aside from Auld Lang Syne, obviously, but the entire run is all originals. And it's something that's picked up upon by the fans about midway through the first set of 1229, and then is celebrated. While it does showcase some limitations, uh, specifically on 1230, ultimately it leads to, you know, the gem set, which is really, along with Worcester, this is your 30th anniversary celebration in a lot of ways, they play a bunch of old songs, they used hockey sticks as microphones to throw it back to their first show on 12-283, and it really just showcases a band that understands that the the way forward is through their songs and through their creativity and their songwriting, and that they can't just take these old songs and expect them to continue to deliver for them in the way that they did 20, 30 years earlier. They have to create new ideas.
7: The song catalog expanded again in 2015, after Trey graduated from what he called Dead Camp, where he learned more than 80 Grateful Dead tunes. There are a number of well-known popular artists whose own repertoire never exceeded 80 songs. Trey spent the spring getting inside the DNA of those tunes so that he could play them live, once. Rather than bring those songs, many of which are well-known and loved, masterpieces, to Fish's stage show, He used the experience as a springboard to write more originals to add to Fish's song list. I wrote some of those songs with him. The seven that the band debuted during their opening weekend of their 2015 tour, a two-night run in Bend, Oregon, included ones that we wrote at Kitty Hawk in the Outer Banks of North Carolina in February 2015, Blaze On, No Man in No Man's Land, and Mercury. All three songs would take up real estate in Fish's set lists ever after including epic, show-stopping versions at the Baker's Dozen. If 2015 was peak 3.0 fish, then 2016 was a natural sideways glance that fish often gives following a peak year. Having conquered new territory, Fish always leaves the spoils to the fans, but they themselves are not interested in sitting down for the feast, and they are far too restless for victory laps. So while fans debate the best jams of a particular tour, the band usually already has their sights on new territory, always eager to move ahead into whatever's next. The thing about exploration is that not every nook or cranny has treasures, and there can sometimes be stretches of open road with not much in terms of scenery as you drive from point A to point B. During those valleys between peaks, fish likes to challenge themselves by doing things that will force them to keep moving, especially on the heels of any recent conquest. Their indefatigable spirit has led them straight into a swamp in the Florida Everglades, where they played all night long in front of 80,000 people. And 17 years later, on July 21st, 2017, it led them right to the steps of 4 Pennsylvania Avenue, Madison Square Garden, where they hung up their coats and stayed for the following three weeks straight. We hope you'll hang up your coat and stick around a while, too. We'll be right back. Before the break, we traveled back in time, making various stops before and after Fish's millennium concert, Big Cypress, with its Midnight Till Dawn set. Now let's set the flux capacitor to the winter of 2017, when rumors of the Baker's Dozen were loud and clear to those who were listening. One of the people listening was Fish fan, Carla No, who last season walked us through the experience of dancing in the inner moat of the old MSG before the renovations. You
4: know, when they announced the shows, I was pretty ecstatic, but it, I think it was in January. It was pretty early on. Um, and there had been chatter actually for several months and the different social forums that this was happening. And I was pretty sure it was happening. So once it was confirmed, I, I was really excited, but I didn't make the decision to go to all of them right away. Um, I was actually still living in SF. And so, you know, I looked at the dates and I thought, okay, I'm going to go to the beginning and go to the end because it would involve several cross-country flights. But then by the time, I think it was May, I had decided to move back to the metro. And so once I moved back, I went into it thinking I'm going to try to do all of it because it was my local show. But I'm kind of superstitious when it comes to shows like that. Like I go into it with the plan to go to like, these are the shows I want to see and this is what I want to do. But things come up and you never know. So that's kind of where I was at. But, you know, door to door from my house to MSG, I can get there in less than 30 minutes. And so I I knew that I would be able to do it, but I would have to pace myself. (laughs) (laughs) That promo video they put out I thought was awesome. I think I probably watched it like a dozen times. And because I was homesick and it was like they have all these shots of different parts of the city and like the reactions of the donuts. You know, I I was pretty excited. I know some people were disappointed. From the beginning, I thought I have to be there in the beginning and I'm going to be there at the end.
7: Carla, like me, was one of the Baker's Dozen completists who went to all shows. Let's check in with another fan who also has a perfect attendance record for the residency. Sam Timberg,
2: I, I remember the video they released with the you know the donut bouncing down Seventh Avenue, and if I if I recall correctly, there'd been some chatter on Twitter or wherever about the Baker's dozen, and and you know people had dug up the, the quote from Page back in the day talking about you know something that resembled the Baker's dozen. The idea didn't seem to come completely out of left field to me. The fact that it actually came together, though, and that they actually decided to go through with it blows me away. And at, at the time, I think there was this sort of moment of shock, like immediately the discussion turned to, well, are they going to they gonna play repeats? You know, what are they going to? Are they going to introduce a new secret language? Are they going to bring back the old secret language? You know, what are they going to do? What does 13 nights in the same venue, a venue that they absolutely adore, what is that going to do for the band? What is it going to allow them to do that? you know, a traditional tour of two nights here, one night here, three nights there. What's the vibe gonna be? And, you know, almost immediately, that was the, the impact was it got everybody talking about the possibilities of fish again. It was an interesting time for that as well. Cause here's, you know, four guys in their fifties, all of a sudden embarking on something that they've not only never done before, but really outside of like Las Vegas residencies, Um, which are scripted shows that are ideally exactly the same night to night. I mean, I don't know of any band that's ever set out to achieve what the Bakers doesn't achieve. 13 nights, no repeats, hundreds of songs. So when the announcement came out, I think we all were psyched about it. I don't think any of us had a clue that it was going to play out the way it did. You know, we talk about secret languages, like, We talk about those shows by the name of Donut. I can say Jimmy's. I can say Double Chocolate. You know what I'm talking about. And it's weird. It is this funny secret language surrounding donuts in an arena shaped like a donut. And at every juncture blew me away musically, creatively.
7: And Undermine's own Nick Sejas. You know, I've been doing this for a long,
5: long time. We have a lot of friends, obviously. We have a lot of the same mutual friends, people who are in the know, people who work in different organizations and, you know, different message boards that they always leak information. So there was some buzz that something big was coming. People were talking about a six-pack. You know, there were all these different, like, you know, terms to, to phrase it. I, never in my wildest dreams did I think it would be 13 nights in a row at the garden. That's dramatic, vision. <laughs> Jesus. But yeah, no, there was there was a little bit of buzz leading up to it, but nobody really knew for sure. And then once it was announced, shortly after that was when the whole donut theme popped up, which was the, added a whole nother level to the expectations and the understanding of what was going to be going down.
10: We were pretty psyched that 13 shows were going to be happening in a subways ride away from our home. You know, and a lot of people initially were like, you're going to go to all 13 of them? Are you out of your mind? And it's like, I've flown to Mexico to see fish. I've flown all over the country. I've spent thousands of dollars to see this band. Am I going to spend $2.50 to put my butt on a subway train and get directly to Madison Square Garden? Yeah, I'm probably going to do that. (laughs) I also wasn't working at the time. I didn't have to rearrange work schedules. I do know plenty of people who did the crazy go to all of the shows and go to work the next morning schedule, which I don't know how they made it out alive. Happier, although probably much more haggard version of themselves after those three weeks of shows. But I don't think there's anyone who went to all thirteen who would say that it wasn't worth it. Plus it was a it was a deal. You only had to buy 10, 12 tickets. You got thirteen for free. It was basically like they were paying you to go.
7: <laughs> That's the voice of Diana Hank, who goes by the name of Diana underscore two N's on Twitter. Now you know what she sounds like.
10: In the immediate sense, it completely transported me from the real world to this wild surreal fish world where every day of my life was wake up get ready for fish shows, go to a fish show oftentimes go to an after show get on the train come back to my home which is my regular home but at this point it was my fish home also go to bed and then wake up and do it again the next morning Because we lived in the city, we had people coming and going out of our apartment, different people crashing with us every weekend. So we were able to put our friends up, um, you know, help them with the costs a little bit. Again, it is always a little different doing it from the comfort of your own home, if you will. You don't have to worry about transportation, really. You don't have to worry about hotels and where you're eating. Sleeping in your own bed is always lovely. You don't have to pack anything. So I felt very, very, very fortunate. And yeah, again, it just turned my life into this weird and wild and wonderful fish existence for over the course of three weeks. We got the 13-night package, and a lot of the folks in our section also got that um, package. We ended up seeing a lot of the shows with a lot of the same people who were strangers at first, but became very, very close friends by the end of it, Um, and that was another experience that was singular in terms of seeing shows at Madison Square Garden. Initially, when it was announced, I wasn't super thrilled, to be honest. You know, obviously, having all these shows close was awesome, but part of the reason that I love doing fish tours, like traveling to new places and getting to see new venues and getting to see new parts of the country and having a reason to go to different states that I never would have gone to before. So it kind of felt like this was taking away from that at first. And I had a weird relationship with Madison Square Garden. It's a hometown venue, obviously, but it's always so frustrating trying to get tickets with more than, you know, even one other person for New Year's shows.
7: Let's bring this around with one of my favorite Wookiees. Tim Donahue, a.k.a. Weekend Wook. He cleans up all right during the week. Promise.
6: So it actually was New Year's Eve 2016. And that seems like it doesn't line up because the official announcement came later. But we were leaving MSG. We were leaving our section right after the end of the New Year's show. And the vendor said, we'll see you this summer. It was a sweet lady, the sweet old lady. And I don't know if you remember, but at that time there were rumors flying around but I wouldn't expect her to be on like Fish Rumors or Fantasy Tours or something, right? Like, so if she knew something, I figured it meant something. And she's like, yeah, 13 shows this summer. I turned my wife in. I was like, we're going to every single one of those. And she was fully on board. Because obviously you just came off of seeing New Year's Eve. So you're already riding high. So it was a perfect time to, you know, throw it out there.
7: We'll close with Jam Base editor Scott Bernstein, who has his ear to the ground for fish rumors and one of the scene's best noses for sniffing out fish truffles.
14: I would say about a year before The Baker's Doesn't Happen, friends, friends of, of friends would give reports that, hey, fish is booking 13 shows at Madison Square Garden. And it just seemed unbelievable to me. I just didn't think it could really happen. And it didn't take long once the rumors started for people to remember the Relics article where Page had discussed the potential of a baker's dozen. And the members of Fish had wanted to do something completely unusual and um, outside the box for them. So when I first heard the rumors of 13 shows at Madison Square Garden, I thought it was crazy talk and I I didn't think it it was really going to happen. And then um, something just changed. Maybe it was early in, in 2017 where when there was so much smoke, there had to be fire when it came to the Baker's dozen.
7: Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you next week when we dive into 26 sets of music, the complete baker's dozen, as we examine the musical flavors of those 13 set lists. Bring your swimmies. We're going to jump off the high dive and stay tuned after the credits for another misleading preview. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, Matt Dwyer, and Benji Eisen. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. It is written by Benji Eisen. Production assistance from Rob Mitchum, Matt Bavuso, Christina Collins, and Nick Sejas. Original music by Amar Sastri. Art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all our interviewees. We'll see you next week. next week not on undermine so i saw paul
1: mccartney there and it was like a last minute miracle ticket from somebody who was going and he had like really good seats like really good seats like like 10th row basically or something and play they play live and let die pretty early on in the show i know my beatles really well i don't know my solo mccartney stuff that well i definitely i kind of have a vague awareness that they're like Videos for these songs. So he's playing the song, and I'm kind of thinking, oh, isn't this that video with the maybe they'll do the thing with the flames? And like, as this thought about like flame jets is formulating in my mind, a wall of flame jets, it's like erupts behind the band, and it's like a Simpsons thing where my face is like when I like feel the heat on my face. And it was, but it was also just like, a, you know, going into the chords, you know, that big part of Live and Let Die. And it was this big rock moment. That, like, I, you know, I kind of expected going into that night and it delivered. It was great. But it's the total opposite of what you're going to get out of a fish show and what you want to get out of a fish show. You don't know what that moment's going to be with fish. You know, if I had stopped to think about the Paul McCartney show in advance, I would have surely landed on Flame Jets and Live and Let Die pretty quickly. Never would I have, you know, even with the conceit of Jam Filled, I wouldn't have landed on Sample in a Jar, Opener, Hold That Cord, Go. You know, or lawn boy, or or anything that happened that night.
3: Osiris, welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast?
14: think about jumping off the bed singing along dancing like an idiot and listen to Axe grind podcast
6: hey you do you have any plans this year
1: 020-D.com soundtalentmedia.com or on your favorite podcast app.